Uh, good morning and welcome. Uh, we are going to be looking at 1 Kings 15 and 16 today. Uh, like Lynn has said, it is a chapter full of murder, a chapter full of wickedness, a chapter full of failure, and not overly much great. So let's see what we can do with it. So, in today's sermon, we're going to be covering three movements in this passage. Uh, we're going to be covering how Ahab rejected the Saviour, and how Asa desired the Saviour. And then last, we're going to be asking the question, do we desire the Saviour? So we're going to begin today, first looking at the end of chapter 15, and then the start of 16, which Andrew didn't read. I'm going to read it for you. So before we get to Ahab, we have a quick history of a few of the kings of the northern kingdom, uh, which is Israel. Now, I struggle to understand and keep up with who is who. Um, I imagine most people probably do. Um, So we're going to look at the north, which is the top. The north is, by and large, bad. Not much good happened in the north. So that's where we're going to start off. So some really clever dude designed a game. It's a board game. It's a computer game. It's a game everywhere. It's called Kings of Israel. The aim of the game is to try and remove the wickedness from the kingdom. The game was rigged. You can't win the game. You can never actually remove the wickedness from Israel. Um, So, spoiler alert, have you ever played the game? So, this really helped me. So, we're going to start up below where it says Solomon on the left in yellow, on the right, sorry. We're going to jump down two more, just a little bit further. So, we're going to start with chapter 15 and verse 25. And we're going to start with uh, Nadab. So, if you want to follow along, it's in verse 25. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel for two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father, and committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. Baasha, son of Ahijah, from the tribe of Issachar, plotted against him. And he struck him down at Gibbethon, a Philistine town, while Nadab and all Israel were besieging it. Baasha killed Nadab in the third year of king of Asa, king of Judah, and succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all according to the word of the Lord. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, king of Ahijah, became king of all Israel in, T- in Terzah, and he reigned 24 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of Jeroboam and committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, son of Baasha, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Terzah for two years. Zimri, one of his officials who had committed command of half his chariots, plotted against him. Elah was in Terzah at the time, getting drunk in the home of Arza, the palace administrator at Terzah. Zimri came in, struck him down, and killed him in the 27th year of King Asa, king of Judah. Then he succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign and was seated on the throne, he killed off Baasha's whole family. He did not spare a single male, whether relative or friend. So Zimri destroyed the whole family of Baasha in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah. Zimri reigned in Terzah seven days. The army encamped near Gibbethon, a Philistine town. When the Israelites in the camp heard that Zimri had plotted against the king and murdered him, they proclaimed Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that very day there in the camp. Then Omri and all the Israelites with him withdrew from Gibbethon, laid siege to Terzah. 
When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the royal palace, set the palace on fire around him, so he died. Because of the sins he had committed, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and following the ways of Jeroboam and committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. Then the people of Israel were split into two factions. Half supported Tibnah, son of Gidnath, for king, and the other half supported Omri. But Omri's followers proved stronger than those of Tibni, son of Ginnath. So Tibni died and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned 12 years, six of them in Terzah. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit, so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria in, over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Such so a quick summary of the few in-between kings. Murder, succeed, murder, succeed, murder, succeed, and so on. So here we see a pattern of evilness, murder, and ungodliness. Then to cap it off, we end with King Ahab, who the Bible says, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And the ones before him were pretty bad. So in verse 33, it states that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all before him. To put this in context, there's not a single other human person in biblical history to be given this title, to provoke the Lord to anger than all before him. There was no godliness in this man. He made it his life's mission to anger and provoke the Lord to his absolute best. He knew the history of his people, and he actively, intentionally chose to not only to ignore it, but to go out of his way to anger the Lord. This is the title that he now goes down in history with. Now, with this infamous title, the scripture breaks down how he managed to actually achieve it. So we're going to flick through Ahab rejecting the Savior. We read that he committed the sin of Jeroboam. Now, this is a specific sin. It's not a generic. But which one? Jeroboam created a man-made system of worship. He created idols. He created a form of worship that not only ignored God, but actively opposed all things holy. To see this in today's terms, let's imagine a lawyer. This lawyer, he studies the law of the country. He knows all the moral and ethical rules that have been put in place. He knows all the loopholes that are in the law. And he knows all the places that he could slip through those little cracks. However, he doesn't use the holes. He doesn't use the cracks. He goes out, finds how many of all these laws overlap, and then does completely the opposite thing. After achieving complete opposition to these laws, he encourages everyone else to do the same until... His law that he has now put up completely in, contra in contradiction to the law is all that is left. Ahab, he was given power and responsibility, and he intentionally corrupted and distorted biblical worship and encouraged everyone else to follow in his destructive path. The scripture then goes on. He says he married Jezebel. Now, Jezebel, if you read more of the Kings and Chronicles, is potentially, controversially, the most wicked woman in Scripture. She was an avid Baal worshipper. 
Now, Baal, Baal was one of the gods of the Canaanite people. He was notably known as a fertility god and one who was worshipped, worshipped through pig slaughter and human child sacrifice. He was commonly depicted as a bull. She was not a woman who distorted or compromised in creating middle ground with the Israelites. She actively removed all thought of Yahweh and together with Ahab did the complete opposite, brought Baal in, brought idol worshippers in and completely distorted the idea of Christian worship. Ahab knew who she was prior to marrying her. And he knew how far removed she was from the God of the Israelites. And he chose to ally himself in direct opposition to God. He then, as king, allowed the city of Jericho to be restored. Now, to understand what this meant, we need to jump back to Joshua chapter 6, where we read, At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. Ahab knew his history. Hael will have known the history. Despite this, they were so intent on their corruption and bent on the destruction of all godliness that Hael's own son was lost during the construction. Now, a bit of a bit of, a bit of reading. And commenters, commentators are divided about how this potentially happens. Most seem to believe that in a bid to overrule the curse of God that had been laid down by Joshua, that Hael sacrificed his son to Baal, because Baal required child sacrifice. Others say that they were struck down while rebuilding the cursed city. Either way, once these two were killed, they still continued. They still built the city. They had physical evidence that this was a cursed project and a godless action, and they chose to please themselves and to attempt to remove all essence of God from their kingdom. Now, like Ahab, every person will have influence on another person, even if it's only a small way. Siblings are going to influence other siblings. Parents, we influence our children. Friends... You influence your friends, spouse with spouse. Within our own church, we have youth leaders who influence our youth children. We have elders who have influence over the congregation. We have com who have influence over the church organization and decisions and the running of the church. So do we lead well? And do we lead right in the sight of God? We saw Ahab chose not to actively chose not to. He used his position to turn people away from God. He chose to defy and destroy godliness from his life and all those that he had influence over. So do we actively present ourselves as a stumbling block for other believers and non-believers? Or do we do our best to be intentional in, in our lives and remove those barriers for others and show them the glory of God? We read in 1 Peter 1.13, just as he called you as holy, so be holy in all you do. Ahab rejected the Saviour. Are you? Are you rejecting the Saviour? Now, that's the end of Ahab in 1 Kings 16. So we're going to jump back to 1 Kings 15, and we're going to move geographically south, 
and jump into Asa. Asa was the king in the south. Asa was son to Abijah. Abijah was an evil king. So Asa was brought up in a world that despised God and actively rebelled against the Lord. Despite this, we see our first introduction to Asa in verse 11 say, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. We see here the king had rejected his parental upbringing, and he honored the lineage of David, who we see is called his father, not his biological father, but his spiritual father. We read in verse 12 that Asa expelled or banished all male prostitutes and idols from the land. He didn't simply replace them. He didn't change the religious practices that his father had instituted, but he banished it from in the entirety of the land. He cast it as far away from him and his people as he could. He expelled the male prostitutes back to their pagan homeland. He had all the idols gathered together and thrown out. And this isn't a quick overnight thing. This is a years of painful and hard work, rooting out all the places these idols had taken place and all the places where people were gathering in these pagan worships. He was placed in a position of leadership and influence and his first act was to destroy all ungodliness from the entirety of the land. Now, I'm not a king. I'm not even a politician, nor am I often very politically correct majority of the time. Does this mean that because I don't have that position or power that I can't make changes? Of course not. Okay? I still have some authority to do some things. What do I have control of? Do I find the evilness and wickedness that exists in my own life that affects me and those around me and do I remove it? I should be. And truth be told, I fail at this very often. There are things that I can control. Do I place where my money should be? Do I place my time in the scriptures and leading my family like God commands me to? Do I reflect the glory of God through my job teaching to my students at school all the time? Again, I should be. I should be like Asa and be intentional in removing all obstacles and idols, not only for my life, but also from those that I have influence of. Do we pray for our government? To my shame, I don't. I forget very regularly. They do have power to make national changes. How do we ever expect our nation to turn to Christ if we can't even find the strength or time to pray for those that God's appointed in those positions? Do we encourage those in positions of influence to promote God's righteousness? Our elders in the church are in a God-appointed position of influence and power. Are we encouraging and praying for our elders to use their influence to remove ungodly obstacles in our own congregation? The scripture then continues with Asa. He even deposed his grandmother, Marka, from a position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive image for the worship of Asherah. Asa cut it down and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Now, this is personal. How many people have the courage to stand up to their family member and let alone remove them publicly. This wasn't a quiet discussion had behind closed doors. He cut down the image. He set it aflame. This is a very, very public display. But Asa was intent in removing all ungodliness. 
And so we see a picture is painted here for us. That change begins at home. And it starts with you. It starts with me. It first begins in the heart of the believer and it spreads from there. How are we to show God's majestic glory if we cannot even get our own lives straight? Now, don't get me wrong, addressing evil is hard. It can hurt. And it's going to be personal. It may be within ourselves. It may be within our children, our spouse, our friends, or even within the church. Do we have the strength to stand up like Asa did and confront it? There are many, if not all, that can describe times in our lives that calling out evil and wickedness has resulted in personal pain. It might be a loss of a friend or a family member. It might be a demotion at work. It might be a dismissal from a church. These things happen, and we shouldn't cower just because it scares us. We see an example in Asa that is made perfect in Jesus. Stand up to these things in the full strength and knowledge that God is with us. Asa, he prioritized faithfulness to God over everything. He chose God over his own family. He chose God over comfort and ease. Asa was raised a non-believer. He was raised as a pagan. He was raised in a wicked society. Did this make him automatically exempt from the kingdom of God? Absolutely not. Our biology and that of the people around us do not dictate our spiritual lives. God can make a new any person, no matter what your upbringing was or whatever lies in your past. I see students at school on a daily who come from torn and shattered families. I have kids tell me of their divorced parents. They tell me of their drug-addicted parents, their criminal behavior, their time in juvie, their physical and sexual and verbal abuse. And I see the damage that these children go through and how often they turn to anger and hatred. So often, I have fallen in this before too. Look at these broken people and give up, to, give up on them. We don't see a light of redemption. We don't see a way out. We see a lost cause. And in doing so, we so often limit God in our own minds. This should come as a challenge to us all, myself included, that no one is outside of God's grasp. Asa didn't follow in the ways of his father for his life. He was counted as doing right in the eyes of the Lord. What a title that is. Can we claim that title? Can we claim to be doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord? Now, however, and sadly there's always a however when we talk about humans and we talk about sin. Asa, like so many Christians today, myself included, we backslide. We lose sight of God and we lose sight of his promises. We slowly begin to trust in ourselves and in the lies of the world. Then we come to verse 16 to 23. Here we come to a failing Asa. As we read this passage, we need to have a little geography and a little history lesson. On the slide that is about to pop up, we're going to see a map of Israel and Judah from a few chapters ago. Okay. Judah is down the bottom in the north, Israel up in the top. Now, Asa had been at war prior to this conflict quite regularly with Baasha several times, and most notably with the Cushites and Libyans, which we read in 1 Chronicles 14. A lot of that war happens around his territory. So Baasha, who is currently king up in the north, comes down just north of Jerusalem. So if you can see, I'm going to move over this way for a tick. 
just on the borderline between the red and the green, there is a place called Jericho. He's come down just below that to a place called Rama. Rama is significantly important because it's the main trade route up and down between the two nations. Rama is an incredibly wealthy, influential place and holds a lot of the economic success of the nations. So Basha comes down and he begins to fortify that city and prevent trade and all other practices that accompany the trade. Asa loses sight of asking God for help like he has done every other time he's been in war in his life and decides I can do it on my own. So what he does is he gathers some treaty money, he gathers it from the temple, and gains the employee of Ben-Hadad, king of Aram. Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, exists up above the top of the green, north of the northern kingdom. Ben-Hadad breaks his treaty with the northern kingdom and begins to attack the upper regions of that northern kingdom. So he attacks places such as Dan, which I think is on the board up there, right at the very top, and a few other places around there. So to counter this new threat, Basha leaves the southern kingdom, leaves Rama in the middle of fortification, and has to retreat back into his own kingdom to fight off Ben-Hadad. Now, Asa steps into Rama and removes it completely, takes, dismantles it, stone by stone, timber by timber. And I love ancient history, and to me, that sounds like a brilliant tactical move. If you need to get someone out of your kingdom, make a treaty with the people above them, make them from attack from above, and push them back up. In theory, that sounds great. However, if we flick over in 1 Chronicles 16, which also goes through the account of Asa, at that time, Hana the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army that came with numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet, when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on, you will be at war. We see just further in scripture that as he died, it mentions his disease in his feet. Again, if we skip back to 1 Chronicles 16, we can read a little bit more of what that means. And we read in verse 10 of chapter 16, Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison about telling him that he did the wrong thing. At the same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. The events of Asa's reign from the beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from physicians. Can read that last bit again? Though his disease was severe, he did not seek help from the Lord. Even though he knew God and had dedicated his earlier years to the faithful banishment of all pagan idolatry and upturning his entire family at a personal cost to himself he still lost sight of the Lord. Now, how often do we forget to ask the Lord for help, even for the small trivial things? There are three stages in any Christian's life. There's forward, there's backwards, and there's stagnant, not moving anywhere. Asa was strong in going forward when he entered his kingship. We see towards the end of his life, he begins to slide backwards. But before backwards, 
becomes non-movement. Do we rely on the word for help or do we consistently look to Christ in everything? Do we notice when our family and friends are moving backwards and do we encourage and support them to start moving forward again? Self-reliance and world-reliance are not that dissimilar. Both remove God from the picture. We read in Romans 15.5, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Jesus Christ had. Asa desired the Saviour. Do you? Do you? This is a big question. Do you? Do you? Do I actively remove all godliness from our world wherever we have power and influence? Isaiah 57 reads, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. In Hebrews 10.26, we read, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. We're called to be intentional in our lives. We're called to not only turn away from sin, but to banish and expel it from our lives. We're commanded to not only seek to put Christ first and central in our lives, but also to witness and encourage and support our believing and non-believing friends towards a more Christ-centered life. Again, do you? Do I allow sin to pass by unchecked and not call it out? We're called to be active and not lead a passive life. If we don't stand for what is right and preach it to the world, how will any grow to understand and understand our great God? We read in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And then in Colossians 4, 5, we read, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Do you, do I, make the personal hard decisions to remove godlessness and promote godliness? Look around you now. When was, the first, when was the last time you corrected a brother or sister in Christ and called them out in sin? When was the last time you actively went to someone that you saw in sin and called it out? As I look out, are you guys here? I failed that. I worry sometimes that I will lose friendships or relationships will change. I back away either in shame in my own sin or fear of speaking out. Hebrews 14, 12, Hebrews 4.12 reads, For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's going to hurt. The word of God is designed to be sharp. It doesn't say we shouldn't wield it. Rather, we're commanded to wield it and use it for the betterment in each other's spiritual walks. Again, do you, do I rely on Christ or do we rely on the things of this world? We're called to be in this world but not of it. In 1 John chapter 2, we read, Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. 
For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving but for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see and a pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who, what, anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So I ask you, where is your hope? Where is your hope? We can be like Ahab and we can turn away from the Saviour. But know this, it ends only in one place and that place is hell. The place that is devoid of all things good. It's devoid of God, devoid of love. A place where all evil and wickedness gather in their fate away for eternal life. Or we can be like Asa. We can rely on Christ. We can make the hard and personal decisions to remove godlessness. We're going to stumble. We're going to still sin. We will fall short, just like Asa in our walk. If we didn't, Christ would have no meaning. However, we read in Hebrews 10, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So I'm going to encourage you all today to place your hope in Jesus Christ, to give your life to the Father, and encourage and support your brothers and sisters with the power of the Holy Spirit. Salvation comes only through the repentance of our sins and accepting the free gift of grace that God extends to us. And I want to leave you with a challenge today, a challenge that's going to make you uncomfortable, a challenge that's going to hurt, a challenge that's going to be personal. I want you to leave this building today. And over morning tea or in your conversations this afternoon, I want you to talk to someone about where you have failed in your life, somewhere where you have failed, somewhere where you struggle. And I want you to ask for support. I want you to be vulnerable and I want you to open yourself up. And again, I'm going to emphasize it's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. But it's what we're called to do. I want you to trust God and I want you to allow the help of fellow believers. Allow Christ to throw th flow through your entire being and mold you more like him. I'm going to close with prayer. Lord, thank you we can be here today. Lord, please help us to be more Christ-like. Please help us to choose godliness. Please help us to remove all thought uh, that is not uh, heavenly. Lord, help us to be a strength and a support for our fellow believers. Help us to be bold in spreading your word to non-believers. Lord, please help us not to limit you in our own minds, Lord. You are capable of all things. Uh, please give us this strength. Lord, pray that this word that uh, we have spoken this morning and read, Lord, pray that you will uh, challenge our own lives. I, will, I hope that it does push us to uh, push ourselves towards more Christ and help us to help our fellow believers, Lord. 
Lord, I pray that as we walk away today, Lord, I pray that you will just give us the strength to continue to be and act more like you. Lord, I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.